31, this is the word of God. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Read that far in God's word together tonight. Verse 29, Peter had this breakthrough that he announced he knew who Jesus was. He was the Christ. And he must also learn now what kind of Christ he came to be. We get to that issue right away in our very first verse of our passage, verse 31, where Jesus said, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Wait, stop. What, what kind of Christ? A suffering Christ? How do we get across to ourselves this evening just how unusual that would be in the mind of the culture, in the mind of the disciples, in the mind of Peter? The same Peter who just confessed, you are the Christ, didn't know what Christ meant. Yes, Jesus had spoke plainly. We understand that from verse 32. The disciples understood the implications this time. This time, they're understanding. This was not the kind of Christ that they were expecting. When they had just a moment ago prior confessed Christ, their breakthrough had not included this information about the kind of Christ Jesus would be. The disciples had been groomed to think that the Christ would be a powerful and victorious governmental leader, a political leader, The disciples believed that they would become his kingdom officials, his cabinet, if you will. They understood him to be a victorious Christ, more powerful than the Roman Empire, come to help the Jewish people, much like Moses would have done or any other one of the judges in the Old Testament days. The disciples believed that Jesus, to be a suffering Christ instead, meant that the disciples themselves had misjudged their own involvement in this movement and their own place in following him. The disciples must then join in the suffering. If the Christ must suffer, then the disciples of Christ must suffer. And to use the miracle again from verse 24, where Jesus had partially healed the man's eyes and then later fully healed the man's eyes, to describe the current condition of Peter, Peter had his eyes partially healed. But Peter was still experiencing some level of spiritual partial blindness, wasn't he? Peter was expecting that God's kingdom would come in power and majesty and glory. Jesus here is retraining Peter to see with increasing clarity that God's kingdom would come in rejection, in humiliation, and shame. It brings us to our main point. Once we understand that the normal Christian life 
involves dying to self in order to find life in Christ, we must make up our minds, in or out. We'll see the question, can we accept that Jesus needed to suffer, verses 31 and 30, 32 and 33. Second question, can we accept that we must suffer, verses 34 to 37. And the last question is really what it's about. Is it worth it? First, can we accept that Jesus needed to suffer? Many around the disciples understood Christ in an earthly, in a political sense, as a person who would save the Jewish people from mistreatment by the Roman government. Finally, they had been waiting hundreds of years for this exact sort of Christ. And here Jesus is teaching them that he is the Christ, and yet he's a different sort of Christ. He's teaching them he's not going to be that military leader. He's not going to be that governmental leader, that political figure, that influential person. It was necessary for Jesus not to have a comfortable rise to power, but rather to suffer. It was necessary for Jesus, as he says here in verse 31, not to be accepted, but rather to be rejected by the leaders, by the elders, by the chief priests, by the scribes. It was necessary for Jesus not to win, but to be killed. What an absolute shock this would be to the disciples a very different sort of image about what the Christ would be and therefore what Jesus would be. In the past, Jesus had spoken about this, but he had done so in a veiled manner. He had spoken about his sufferings. For example, back in chapter 2, Mark 2, verse 20, quote, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in that day. Mark 2, 20. It's there, but you admit it's a little cloaked. But now, Jesus said that he must be killed. Pretty clear, verse 32, Mark wrote that Jesus said this plainly. It got across, the disciples reacted. Verse 33 was the rebuke from Peter to Jesus. I shudder every time I read it, every time I think about it, that the follower rebukes the leader, that the student rebukes the rabbi, that the sinner rebukes the Savior. But there it is. We wonder, don't we, whether Peter had ever read Isaiah 53. We know good and well that he would have. He would have been in the synagogue, he would have read this many times over, but how could he miss it? Just think through with me the words and phrases about the Messiah, about the Christ from Isaiah 53. Things like, carried our sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, oppressed, afflicted, led to the slaughter, grave, crush, poured out his soul to death, bore the sin of many. You know, those sorts of phrases. Peter, 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 Peter. How can you miss it, Peter? How could Peter so severely misunderstand the role of the Christ? So next we have the response from the great teacher himself who understands what we have just been thinking of, how severely Peter had missed the point. And so the great teacher, with great patience, begins to teach a response that is now in response to his, his rebuke. Initially, in verse 31, his response was to teach him. But when Peter's taking Jesus aside and rebuking him in verse 32, Jesus in verse 33 now responds to a new situation of the student rebuking the teacher. And Jesus did not just speak privately to Peter. But the rebuke to Peter was done in the presence of all the disciples because all the disciples had the same viewpoint. They all needed it. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he has an audience, if you will, Jesus rebuked Peter and said. So 
we have to pause and ask ourselves, why did Jesus give such a stern response? It's because Jesus will not be led astray from the pathway of God the Father, having for him this Messiah role as clearly explained in the Isaiah 53 passage and other places. Peter wanted to turn Jesus away from the cross. He rebuked him in order to keep him from being killed. No, please don't be killed. Please be victorious. Don't choose the pathway of suffering. Choose the pathway of victory and power. It was a direct assault against Christ to fulfill his mission. It's the same thing that the devil had said to him earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Peter wanted to rebuke Jesus into seeing the role of the Messiah as victory without suffering. Think of that. Victory without suffering. And the rebuke, the content of the rebuke of Jesus is now what we turn to. But before I read it again, just pause and ask yourself, did you ever have one of those moments when you never will forget what was said then? I believe that for Mark, our author, as well as for Peter, and probably for every single one of the disciples, this is one of those moments. How do you get the rabbi to refer to Satan when speaking to you and then forget that later. It's Mark, our author, setting the scene in order to bring us these fierce and insistent words of Jesus who could protect the role of Christ anytime, anywhere, because all of our souls are at stake. All the disciples are about to have a, a moment burned into their memories. Here it is. Jesus turns to the disciples and sees them. He turns to Peter to rebuke him, and out come these words, Get behind me, Satan. Now, be clear about this. Jesus is actually addressing Satan. The prince of evil is against the pathway of suffering that leads to the cross. Whatever perverseness got into Peter's thinking was presented as a temptation to Jesus yet again. And Jesus answered that temptation with speed and with finality and with authority to tell Satan to get behind him. Notice that Jesus identified then two, views of viewing, two ways of viewing the situation. Man's view and God's view as he continues in verse 33. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's speaking to Peter. And Satan through Peter. It's all the disciples listening as well. It's quite an audience for this rebuke and this statement. But here's Jesus saying two ways to view the situation. The spiritual things of God include what Jesus said and Peter missed. Did we miss it? Look back at verse 31. And after three days rise again. It is a victorious Messiah, Peter. It is a victorious Messiah, Peter. Peter missed it. All he heard was be killed. He didn't hear it rise again. If you look at the cross, from the perspective of earth, from the perspective of men, it's the end. It's defeat. Case closed. Grieve if you need to, move on. That's from the perspective of men. That's how people see the cross even down to today. It was the end of Jesus' life. But if you look at the cross with the truth and the perspective of heaven, the perspective of God. Instead, you see the cross as victorious, as the glorious beginning of Jesus' everlasting reign. How's that for Messiah? How's that for a governmental overlook? 
Can you accept God's perspective that the cross is central to Christianity, but it's tied to the resurrection? Can you accept the fact that the reality in God's world of what we read in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no other way for us to be saved. Can you accept that a cross is central to Christianity? Peter learned it here. Mark's reporting, but Mark learned it here. All the disciples learned it here. These are the heads of the church, the leaders of the church, the establishment of how the kingdom of God moves forward, and this is where we are to come back to and learn it. All the disciples learned this. Have you learned this? Consider the later apostle of Jesus, one named Paul. Would Paul agree? Yes. Listen to what Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 1.18, so clear. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, in verse 23, 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 23 and 24. Suffering, even suffering to the point of death, was essential for Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. It brings us to our second point where Jesus now shows an enlarged audience that what was true for Jesus holds true for those who follow him. The way of suffering leads to glory. We get to our second point. Can we accept that we must suffer? Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him, notice the larger audience, with his disciples, Jesus said to them, he's saying to the crowd, notice that, keep that in mind. Quote, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. End quote, end of verse 34. The message of Jesus is not just for Peter. Not just for the 12. The message is for everyone, for the crowds. It's the invitation. It's the invitation of the gospel. It's evangelistic. The crowd was called in to hear this statement of Jesus regarding what is discipleship? What is following me? What is Christianity at all? Everyone must take their definition of that from Jesus. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? Everyone has the same definition. There's not two standards, one for real followers, one for serious, fanatical, all-in followers, very, very active church members, and the other standard for more passive, more relaxed church members or followers of Jesus. No, where do we get that from? All have one standard. There's only one standard. Listen again. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, it's the message for anyone in the whole world, the whole crowd who would follow Jesus must understand what following Jesus means. And there's a close connection between what we just studied, the sufferings of Christ, and what we study in the second point, the sufferings of his people. And so Peter, who learned an important lesson that day, would later write, praise God for how he develops us, right? Peter would later write, 1 Peter 4, verse 13, listen, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter got it. The suffering is followed by the glory. You can't get to the glory without the suffering, but when you have the suffering with Christ, you have the glory with Christ. It's a package. So suffering for Christ's sake is not some booster package, not some option for people who are more into this. 
It's a matter of life and death for each person who would follow Christ. So each of these next four verses, verse 35, verse 36, verse 37, and verse 38, begin with a little preposition in the original Greek, for, F-O-R, in English. And that's because these sentences present four points of the basic reasoning underneath the command to suffer for Jesus. Four reasons why we should suffer for Jesus. And Jesus begins to make his persuasion to us in verse 35, pleading with us not to refuse to suffer. Not to refuse to suffer. Why? Here's logical point number one. Four. Verse 35. Four. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what's differentiated here is everlasting life in contrast with everlasting death. All have to hear this again, not not just the 12 disciples in the inner circle. It's not material for church leader retreats. It's the most basic commitment for the newest and least committed church member. Visitors must hear that everyone has to become a disciple, a real follower, a true believer. To come after Jesus is to align yourself with his viewpoint, his teaching, his ethic, not just verbally assenting to some theological belief statement when we stand and say it, but also going home Monday to Saturday to live out the lifestyle fitting for Jesus and fitting for the people of Jesus. We lose our own lives and we live for Jesus and in him by faith. We leave behind our own array of privileges and pleasures and we live only for his cause. We deny ourselves at the very door of entrance. On the way in, we once and for all say goodbye to our old selves. The old priorities, the things we chased and enjoyed, we turn away our old thoughts, our old habits, relying on the things of the chief priests and scribes and elders cannot be harmonized with trusting in Jesus. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. We repeat after Paul, Philippians 3.7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's not all. He also tells us to take up our cross. The image here is of a condemned man forced to pick up and carry his own cross to his place of execution because he will be executed upon that cross that he's carrying. That's the image. The convicted criminal does this under duress. He'd really rather not use that cross for his own death, thank you very much, but he's forced to. However, the image is borrowed here for eager disciples of Jesus to do this willingly. I willingly and voluntarily die to myself in order that I might follow this Savior. We decisively accept whatever pain, whatever shame, whatever persecution are going to be ours in our particular walk with Christ. Note, not someone else's pain, not someone else's place, but what is unique to my own following of Christ and what he asks me to do. Because of our own personal loyalty to Christ and his cause, we will suffer something that we accept on the way in. We know this coming in. We know this day one. This is the explanation of how it works for every single disciple. 
we actually accept it joyfully as if it were a high privilege because it is. We must do it. It's not an option. And yet it's our privilege and our precious opportunity. That's how every Christian views their Christianity. True conversion for the smallest and newest person includes self-denial, includes carrying one's own cross, includes following Jesus in every aspect of our lifestyle. It's permanent. It's an ongoing aspect of every believer leading to a thoroughgoing refining of our character, a lengthening list of duties, and a widening commitment. That's only logical point number one. Logical point number two is now offered by Jesus in verse 36, giving us another solid reason not to follow the wrong pathway. Here we have, quote, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the person who refuses to suffer by thinking of others. He thinks only of himself, does not share, does not give, does not sacrifice anything of his own. He piles up material possessions and pleasures, prestige and fame and all in search of personal gain of peace and satisfaction or whatever he or she thinks that they get from this, but something happens to such a person. When his or her goals get narrower and narrower, their very souls get narrower and narrower. He or she loses whatever remaining slice of noble thought they had in the beginning of being human beings. Jesus says, what are you doing? Good reason not to follow the wrong pathway. Logical point number three is given to us in verse 37, our third four. It's begging us to consider what happens once that life is lost. The logic of Jesus for that future moment of loss is here in verse 37, quote, for what can a man give in return for his soul? How do you get it back? Nothing will pay for that loss. Nothing will retrieve your soul. You lost yourself, lost your way, lost your soul, your humanity, your ability to live somewhere here above the animals. View any situation like a person, not like a machine, not like one who just has desires and appetites and lusts. You become like an animal and seeking personal comfort and avoiding all suffering. For what? For what? For him or her, there's nothing worth suffering for. For him or her, there's nothing worth dying for. And you know what? To be honest, for him or her, there's nothing worth living for. And you've lost something that's invisible to you, sir, ma'am. You've lost the most precious thing. And what can you do to get it back? Nothing. The hollowness and emptiness of Jesus' question hangs with us. So let no one reject the appeal of Christ to deny ourselves and follow him. Must you suffer? Yes. Known fact on the way in. It's part of the deal. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or 2 Timothy 3, 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All will be persecuted. So knowing all of this, let me pass around a clipboard. Who'd like to sign up? <laughs> and yet we know this, Right? 
There's one remaining question. It's our third point of this sermon, but it's the fourth four question from Jesus. Is it worth it? Verse 38 has the fourth occurrence of the preposition for, which is Jesus' fourth logical point to us. Please do not refuse. Logic says to consider the distant future and then work backwards to our present moment. Here goes the reasoning from Jesus to the crowds and to all of us. Verse 38, quote, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To be ashamed of Jesus means to want to have nothing to do with him or to deny him because of the current situation. Jesus is asking for logic to prevail. Think, think, think. Freeze frame where you are and the desire to deny Jesus compared to where we're all going and who this Jesus will be revealed to be. Compare today with that future moment. Who would we rather be loyal to today given where this is all going? The ones who currently have rule over the dominant religion of the times, these elders, these scribes? Or would they rather be loyal to the one who will soon have rule over all the heavens and the earth? The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father one day soon. If they will just think about the future for a few seconds, they would understand what's more logical for their loyalty today. Yes, the Son of Man here on earth was suffering and would suffer more, and he was on his way to being killed. But what then? Please think past this. The Son of Man came from above and will return to the place above. The suffering Son of Man is a temporary role. He won't be suffering permanently. The glory of the Son of Man is the permanent peace. He will gain the acceptance and glory of his Father in heaven. He will return to the glory of his Father. He will gain the following of thousands upon thousands of holy angels who are at his command. He will return with the holy angels themselves as proof. We turn to chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus predicted that some of the people near him would see amazing things during their lifetime. Before they die, before they lay down their head for the last time, they would see Jesus arrested. They would see Jesus beaten and crucified until the sky turned dark and he was dead. They would see his burial. They would see his resurrection appearances. They would see him ascending on the clouds to return to heaven. Some in the crowd would see that. They would see the Holy Spirit given they would know of God's power, as Jesus said later, recorded in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. But on this day, Peter's still making up his mind. While Peter's still thinking through, Jesus has given incredible logic, whether it would be worth it to follow Jesus. I don't know what calculus you're using, Peter. I don't know how you're going to evaluate in the end of the day, whether you're still in and you're going to follow this rabbi or whether you're going to exit at this moment. It's interesting, over in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19, 27, Peter said to Jesus, see, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? It's a question of worth. It's a question of value. Peter's conducting a cost-benefit analysis. Will it be worth it? The answer of Jesus to Peter is a resounding yes. In fact, it will be quite worth it because you stand to gain something here, Peter. 
you will gain Christ. And in gaining Christ, you'll gain your own soul. You'll gain life. You'll gain the future. You'll be on the side of he who is the Son of Man who soon will come in all of his glory. All right, for the moment, we've not bypassed the fact, we've faced it head on that there's suffering and following a suffering Christ. Next step is resurrection. So there's resurrection in following a suffering and resurrected Christ. There's victory in following a suffering and resurrected and victorious Christ. There's gain and glory in following a suffering, then resurrected, then victorious, ascended, coronated, pouring out the Spirit, victorious and glorious Christ. Think about the whole picture, Peter. The suffering Christ becomes the conquering Christ, and he will share the blessings of his conquest with you, Peter, and with all of us who will follow. That's our passage. Can we accept that Jesus needed to suffer? Can we accept that we must suffer? Is it worth it? We leave Peter making up his mind. We go to our concluding applications. Number one, make up your mind. It's, it's the lesson of the passage. It's the lesson of where we've come in our study of the gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel has been a succession of challenges to make up our minds ever since the ministry of John the Baptist presented in chapter 1. John preached for people to repent. You know, the question of John was, are you going to repent or not? Come on out. Be baptized. I'll receive the baptism of repentance. Are you going to be baptized or not? Are you going to repent or not? It's a toggle switch. It's a yes or no answer. A gospel account is not meant to be an interesting series of academic statements. It's not meant to be a presentation of history to keep our attention. It's not meant to be a curiosity about life in the ancient world and some rabbi. The purpose of a gospel account is to help people down through the ages to today to be clear about the kind of discipleship to which Jesus is calling us and to equip us with the information needed in order to respond positively to that call. So far in the Gospel of Mark, very few people have fully made up their minds to follow Christ knowing what that means for him and what it means for us. So when Peter reaches Mark 8, verse 29 at Caesarea Philippi, declaring that Jesus is the Christ, it's a turning point for sure, but Peter still doesn't quite understand what the Christ is to do and therefore what it means for him. And it pushes Peter. And while it's pushing Peter, it's pushing us as readers to make up our minds. Who is this Christ? And what is your connection to him? Are you in or out? We're only at chapter 9. There's more to go in the Gospel of Mark. It's not complete, admittedly. However, the central figure, the person of Jesus, has been presented to us ever so clearly. And by now, we should have abundant information to respond to the challenge that Jesus says, commit. Are you in or out? We must make up our minds. Second, let's ask ourselves, does our Christianity cost us anything? Does our Christianity cost us anything? If not, we haven't really begun to follow. Our crosses are not a bad boss, an unfair school teacher, a bossy mother-in-law in your family. Illness and disability are not even crosses. Our crosses are not any difficulties that come along. Our crosses are defined in this passage as difficulties for Christ's sake. 
difficulties for Christ's sake. Consider again verse 35 where Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake or for the gospel's sake. That's what we're talking about. Specifically, Christian suffering for Christ. We have to ask ourselves if we have any difficulties from following close to Christ. A cross comes specifically from walking in the steps of Jesus, embracing his life, shining his light, and then we get something back. Kickback, persecution, whatever comes. A cross is receiving disdain precisely because we're embracing the narrow way of Christ and we're speaking up about it. Our cross is when we live out the ethics of Jesus Christ in a culture that you have to admit is increasingly hostile to God. There are thousands of brave people who would run into a burning building to save you. They would brave a storm to come rescue you. They would face an active shooter if called by duty to do so and help you. But they would be ashamed to stand in front of this church this evening and say, my central goal is to please Christ in him alone. They would never stand here and say that publicly. And we are never to be ashamed of him who died for us. In spite of mockery, whatever the source, or hard words, whoever those may come from, let us boldly reveal that we serve Christ. We're proud to serve Christ. We're glad to serve Christ. We announce to the whole world that we serve Christ. As heavy as the crosses may be that we bear because of that, Jesus gives us grace to carry our crosses. Don't be delayed from picking up the service opportunity for Christ out of fear of the weight of the Christian life and how the culture will respond. Philippians 4.13, Paul declares, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look how many Christians in times past have come before our generation and have carried their yoke, carried their cross, carried their burden, have found that they were not alone. That's the value of learning church history, the inspiration, the helps. Look how many Christians have found that Christ comes alongside of us in our struggles and that in the end, the words of Jesus prove true. The yoke of Christ is easy. The burden of Christ is light. Matthew eleven thirty. Nothing in this world comes without effort. Nothing in this world comes without setbacks. We understand that. But entering the kingdom of God and serving this king takes effort and includes those setbacks. And so God strengthens us daily with the reminder that the cross is for a little while, but the glory at the end is forevermore. And one more application point. Use the price tags of heaven. What do I mean by that? What value does the world put on things compared to what value God in heaven puts on things? Take, for example, suffering for Christ. Same stories that inspire us. We read in church history of somebody today suffering for Christ. What value does the world put on that? They'd say it's a shame. Get out from under. Escape. They'd say it's useless. But what value does heaven put on that? Read Hebrews 11, where those who suffered are raised up as examples of faith to us. How about this? How about the question of the value system regarding military, political, or governmental power and having a place of leadership within that power realm? What price tag does the world put on that? What price tag does heaven put on that? What about a soul? What's a soul worth? That's in our passage. We could say priceless. We need to place the value on souls that heaven puts on souls. First our own, and then the souls of others. 
Our culture, it bothers me to use the word priceless because you've probably heard it in so many commercials. Our, our culture throws around religious words that belong to us and belong to the church and they belong to preaching, they belong in the scriptures in order to advertise simple, mundane things of the world like credit cards. Meanwhile, our culture throws around religious words as if they're nothing, such as a phrase like this that keeps cropping up in popular songs, he sold his soul to the devil. That's entertaining? That's not the value system of heaven. It's not a phrase to be said flippantly if we have the value system of God. Having all the money in the world, how about that? What's the price tag of heaven on having all the money in the world? All the fame, all the fortune, all the influence, all the pleasure, all the access and all the privileges. What price tag would the world put on that? What price tag do Christians put on that because we gain our value system from heaven? Or the last one, what's the importance of the second coming of Christ? Isn't that what Jesus is teaching about? The Son of Man will come in the glory of the Father. What's the price tag? What's the anticipatory work of the Christian day after day to keep mindful of Christ's coming? What priority ought that to have in our thinking if we're heavenly minded? So I end with this verse regarding suffering where Paul crystallized and summarized our viewpoint in the right thinking of Christians through the centuries. 2 Corinthians 4.17 This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's pray. Father in heaven,